I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. Hello, Rational Fear listeners. This is not a Rational Fear. No, this is uh, another Gumpug. Uh, and a Gumpug might sound strange to you if you're a new Irrational Fear listener. This is the greatest moral podcast of our generation and it's co-hosted by the wonderful Lynn Doe. G'day, Lynn. Hello, hello. I reckon the acronym only gets better every time we keep saying it. Gumpug. I will get there one day. <laughs> Well, I just want to explain it to people who who are fresh from our Melbourne Comedy Festival show who are wondering why Lewis isn't here but you're here. Uh, so I just wanted to make it absolutely clear that, you know, this is the Goompoogs are a monthly anomaly. They're, they're monthly long-form chats about climate change with climate leaders from around the world and uh, it's, not, it's not the usual Irrational Fear show. I'm super excited about our special guest today, though. Um, such a legend. Yes, I'm super excited too. Uh, someone I've admired for the last few years. She is an incredible person. She's 19. She's a true leader and so eloquent and energetic. She is Jean Hinchliffe. She, you, you probably know her from School Strike for Climate. She's she's fast become one of the most important activists and leaders in climate action in Australia. And Lynn, don't take offence to this, but she reminds me of you when I met you about 10 years ago. When I was young, <laughs> this is what happens when you age and become a fossil fuel yourself. You know, it's fine. Um, but yeah, for me, it's like honestly so inspiring as someone who was once young, once upon a time, to see what people are doing these days. And I think Jean has just been remarkable in really leading the way and demonstrating youth is not at all an impediment to creating mass change in the world. Yes, excellent. That interview is coming up very soon, straight after the climate news. I'm recording my end of the greatest moral podcast of our generation on Gadigal land and the Yora Nation. And I'm on Wurundjeri land. Sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty. Let's start the show. Despite global warming, a rational fear is adding a little more hot air with long-form discussions with climate leaders. Good and bad. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The heat waves and drought. Greatest. Mass extinction. Moral. We're facing a man-made disaster. Podcast. They're the climate criminals. Of our... 
For short. All right, Lynn, here we go. Let's get stuck into the climate news. Of course, this week was the Leaders Summit held by the State Department in the United States of America. Biden kind of got out of the gate and automatically said he's going to cut emissions by half by 2030 in what seems to be, uh, I don't know if you caught it, it seemed to be the world's most elaborate Zoom call uh, with 40 leaders from around the world all talking about climate emissions reduction. 50 to 52% reduction. That's a pretty big target, would you say? Absolutely, Mammoth. And I think there's this thing with climate change where there's just like so many bloody numbers, right? 2050, 2030, whatever. (laughs) And you get super confused with it. And it's really important that we're aiming for this like big net zero goal in 2050. But it only works if we set shorter term targets where we can actually measure ourselves against. I think it's that case of the earlier we start addressing climate change, the less likely we're going to have to amputate anything later down the (laughs) track. There's just a big cost with delaying inaction, which, you know, is a bit unfortunate for us as Australians because we did not fare so well last night. No, it wasn't. We'll get to that in just a second, but let's talk about some other countries. Uh, Biden basically laid out a giant plan for the United States to become like a carbon neutral superpower and he ended his speech with, we really have no choice. We have to get this done. Uh, And I thought that was probably the most inspiring yet sobering statement I've heard from an American president in some time and I just it it made me excited made me want to get up and do this podcast this morning (laughs) yeah and given that that happened at 1am like to feel hopeful hopeful that late at night when you're a little bit delirious from something that I think we've like come to grow to not expect much from political leaders so when they can actually still surprise us it's phenomenal and I think you're right with other countries making announcements we have things from Japan and Canada on their targets yeah uh, Japan Japan said 46% to 50% emissions by 2030. Uh, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Mm -hmm. Canada, of course, Canada is another carbon barren kind of run country. They've committed to 40 to 45% by 2030. Now, the EU has a weird target. They've kind of said 55% below 1990 levels by 2030. Uh, Xi Jinping from China said he's going to be phasing out coal within 15 years, which is absolutely Interesting, particularly for listeners of Ray Hadley and uh, and followers of John Barillaro. What do you think uh, Ray Hadley is going to make of Xi Jinping phasing out coal in the next 10 years? Just going to pretend that it never happened. Just going to ignore it, <laughs> twist it into some other, you know, fake news dilemma and just be like, there was no announcement. That was not real. Didn't happen. And then the other interesting thing from South Korea is they've committed to not um, investing in any new coal anywhere in the world uh, from like, very soon, I think 2030, I think they said. So that's that's incredible. That's incredible. And I'm really hoping with that announcement that, you know, one of their neighbours, Japan, is going to follow suit as well and, you know, play along some national rivalries there. It's just really exciting to see how every country wants to, like, do better. And, like, that one-upsmanship here I think is great because it's all about driving greater climate action. Yeah, every country except for, you know, Russia and Australia. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I feel like um, the Zoom mishaps, I think one of my highlights there was, you know, Kamala Harris, like there was a weird echo, but it was like she was just repeating like really strong messages. <laughs> I was like all for it. And then Australia was on mute. So I was like, well, what does that say? No one wants to hear us I, anyway. 
I really enjoyed the uh, the analog that Kamala Harris was echoing, and uh, I could feel like I was in a literal and figurative echo chamber of of people who are progressively interested in climate action. So that was interesting. Also, let's talk about Australia. Look, looks like we're still hovering around that twenty six to twenty eight percent target for twenty thirty. Though the government said they're going to update the target heading into COP twenty six in November, but we haven't seen any update. Unlike many of the other countries that came to the summit this week, so there's nothing new from Scott Morrison in this speech, he, uh, except for some funding for carbon capture storage and some hydrogen stuff, right? Um, so we just heard kind of the hits from Scott Morrison on his climate you know, change kind of rhetoric, stuff we've heard before, meet and beat Paris targets, targets That's that right. were set with Kyoto carryover credits. Uh, Australia is on the pathway to net zero and to get there as soon as possible, which is code for getting to net zero when I'm out of government. Um, he also said that Australia has already reduced its emissions by 19% on 2005 levels, but according to other uh, independent research, it's more like 17%. He also said, you know, if you take out exports, that number jumps to 30 6% reduction. Okay. Well, Australia is is probably one of the largest exporters of carbon emissions in the world. That's right. We're so you third. can't <laughs> you can't take out that number and no one is count no one around the world is calculating a number when they take out uh, carbon emissions from their exports. It's just it's fake maths. He's really creative with his maths. I reckon his personal finances would be a bit similar where it's like credit card debt, that's not real. I'll just exclude that, which means that I have all this cash. It's like perfectly fine. Uh, yeah, I'm no, never entirely sure entirely what's going through Scott Morrison's mind and can't say that I'm the biggest fan of people that want to rest on their laurels and accolades anyway. <laughs> but the most embarrassing thing for us is we don't have much to point to. So, you know, it's not even like we have much to be proud of. So to not be talking about what we're going to do next, we're just in this weird position of using a lot of words but not saying all that much. I mean, there was a line he said, he said, you know, um, we're not into making targets. We want to be judging what we do and we're not going to make targets. We're going to make promises. The world will thank us when they see what we've done. But the thing is, if you look at what Australia's done over the last 30 years, we have done fuck all. Exactly. How do you smash a PB if you don't set what the goal is? And that's us right now. We're just going to be like here forever, not doing much. Very frustrating. One other interesting thing was it seemed to be the the biggest winners of the Australian announcement from Scott Morrison were all the companies he name-checked. He's like, BHP, Rio Tinto, Fortescue, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think think he was just trying to, you know, shore up some support for the next election coming up in 2021. That's right. (laughs) But, like, the irony with some of this is that some of these companies have far more ambitious organisational goals than we have as a country when it comes to policy. So it feels like he's, again, missed the memo. Other people are moving. Other people are making changes. Absolutely. You know, here is a line that you might have heard from Scott Morrison uh, earlier on this week. We're not going to achieve net zero in the cafes, dinner parties and wine bars of our inner cities. It will not be achieved by taxing our industries that provide livelihoods for millions of Australians off the planet as our political opponents sought to do when they got the chance. What a wild line that was. Uh, What he doesn't understand is that the people in the inner cities are leading climate action in Australia. Uh, For instance, the city of Sydney has a net zero target of 2040, not 2050. Melbourne City has already kind of got a net zero target for later on this year. Like we're talking, we're talking about the the two of the biggest cities in Australia are actually leading the charge when it comes to climate action. I think that just was so absurd to me that he would even dare to say that. Of course, it doesn't make any sense at all. 
all. And of course, he's talking to the Business Council of Australia, who would also like some certainty around targets as well. But anyway, I thought that was I thought that was interesting. Like you kind of mentioned that, and I just thought I'd just play that just then. Totally. I think uh, we have a really tough gig dissecting things that just don't make any sense. Like it's already comical (laughs) enough by itself. Like how can we add any value to it? For me, it's this thing, right, where he seems to hate inner city folks, but people in the suburbs, like they're also making this transition as well. Churches, mosques, even hair salons are going net zero now. Like everyone is on track. There's so much rooftop solar in Australia. Like anyone who owns a house is working out ways to put you know, solar on their roof, put battery storage in and, and you know, and reduce emissions from their own home. It's, 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 a, it's a hobby. It's like it's the biggest fringe hobby in Australian suburban life. And these people are taxpayers and they're voters. Like these are, these are real people who are calling bullshit on the government every day when it comes to climate action. Exactly. And I think even if this is an attempt to, you know, appeal to national voters and people in regional communities, they... They see the impacts of climate change, I would say, even more than some of us in the inner cities sipping our lattes where they've had, what, drought, fire, floods, and now a mouse plague as well. I mean, granted, the mouse plague's not so connected to climate (laughs) change, but they're being hit on every single front. And they know that if we don't have climate action policy, that's just going to increase for them and it's not going to be viable anymore to live out in regional rural Australia anymore, which is really sad. Great story to watch from last week's 7.30 is Andy Parks reporting from the Torres Strait, talking to islanders up there whose islands and, and whole culture is about to be wiped out from climate change. So I, if I could recommend you go watch anything, um, go watch 7.30's reports on climate from this week. Really interesting stuff. One highlight, of course, was Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand. She made it pretty crystal clear with four basic things that New Zealand was doing, uh, putting a price on carbon, mandating financial carbon disclosures, ending fossil fuel subsidies and finance adaptation. What does finance adaptation mean holistically, Lynn? Well, I think if people do go and follow your recommendation of watching that 7.30 report, you'll really see what financing adaptation sort of can help do. So we recognise that some climate change is already inevitably locked in. We're going to have to do something about it. It's not enough just to reduce our emissions anymore. We need to help communities that are being really hard hit by this adapt as well. Is that unfortunately in some cases completely moving people's villages and homes? Mm. Is it ensuring that we are flood resistant in the future? What does that look like? That's what financing adaptation looks like. It's just recognising we're going to have to do a little bit of manoeuvring to live in this new normal. When it comes to the leaders, the leader summit on climate, I think one person kind of summed it up probably the best and it was um, uh, Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson. And he was, uh, well, I'll just leave it up to him to explain. Uh, it's very important to go back to the, uh, the original words of, of President Biden, because it's vital for all of us Uh, to show that this is not all about uh, some expensive, uh, politically correct uh, green act of of bunny-hugging, or or however you want to put it. I'm not even wrong with bunny-hugging, but you you, you know what I'm driving at, uh, friends and colleagues. I think we know what he's driving at. Do we, though? This is not about bunny-hugging. This is about jobs and growth. (laughs) Maybe bunnies are a type of tree in the UK. You know, maybe that's what it is. Um, I'm into it, though. Yeah, I like it. Well, that's it for the climate news. I think that's all we've got time for before we head to our interview with Gene Hinchliffe. Um, Lynn, thank you so much for joining us once more for the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Always. Can't wait for the next kapum cook. I I still can't get it. (laughs) It's gumpug. It's so easy. It's so easy. 
But right now, here is my interview with Jean Hinchliffe. Her book is called Lead the Way, How to Change the World from a Teen Activist and School Striker. I think you'll find it a really inspiring message. You're listening to the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Before you became Jean Hinchliffe, mm-hmm. tell me, who was Jean Hinchliffe <laughs> before you became Jean Hinchliffe? Well, I, I think I was still very much um, a, a passionate kid. <laughs> I think, um, oh, that's weird to think of it as before I, I became this figure or something. But, um, yeah, I, I really don't think it was very different because I think it was just that the things I ended up doing became sort of gave me a bit of a profile and became quite big in the, in the news and media and whatnot. And then at that point, I know I had this name, but beforehand, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm, I'm still the same. <laughs> I was, yeah, I'm just um high school student doing activism type stuff on the side. And um, yeah, I guess that's it. <laughs> You've written a terrific book, uh, Lead the Way, and I think what's interesting is someone who's dabbled in activism, particularly in their 20s, there's a lot of knowledge in there that you don't get from other handbooks. I feel like there's a lot of knowledge in in this book about just simple protocols of meetings and how to make people feel welcome and inclusivity. What was it about this holistic approach you thought you'd you'd put in this book? I, I think it was the stuff that I wish was in a book when I first started activism because, um, yeah, I, I think it was being in a space full of young people and pretty much everyone hadn't ever done something that official before as within the school strikes. I realised just how needed it was to have a guide that gives you, sort of teaches you the ropes of it. And it, it helps both in terms of theory and sort of more extensive stuff. But, yeah, the, the most basic things even how to organise a protest. There's no guide to that. Like it's something that I think is a barrier for a lot of people to getting into activism because they feel like since they don't have these tools and this knowledge that they wouldn't be welcomed or that they wouldn't know what they're doing so they wouldn't be very helpful. I sort of hope that by making this knowledge accessible and sort of helping show people that really it's all about just getting involved and taking those first steps, then, you know, they they can to make so much change and they, they can do all this amazing stuff. That's great. So why do you think young people have so much influence and clarity around this issue of climate action? Mm. I think that we have been so instrumental in shifting the conversation from being this sort of clinical scientific issue to being real and human and sort of showing that it's, both is present currently and it has such enormous and very real effects because when you see something and you see different reports and figures and temperatures will increase by this much and, you know, it it doesn't feel real and people are able to distance distance themselves from that. But as soon as you have a young person coming into the room and saying like, hey, I'm terrified, (laughs) like I am so deeply scared for what my future will look like. I'm terrified even... And that every day, I mean, you saw the bushfires and with so many other impacts of the climate crisis that are happening right now, it, it's, it shows people that this is a present and a real issue and that we need to take action now. Mm. Mm. And for when you started taking action, when you decided to do the school strike for climate, what was that impetus for you? What was the thing that you went, man, I've got to do something? Mm. 
I think it sort of the big thing for me was the UN report, which gave us a deadline of 12 years to avert the worst impacts of the climate crisis. And seeing every year that number tick down still is terrifying. So it's been four years now. Yes. Um, (laughs) I think seeing that, because I I knew that the climate crisis was an issue and I'd done some work in the past with Stop Adani and just generally in the space, but I had no clue of just how urgent it was. Like, I, I think I knew, I mean, I knew that we needed to do something immediately, but it was that deadline, like that number of years. And I could look at it and I could say, well, I will be 25 when that deadline is reached. And I don't want that to be the case. So I think because of that, that's what really fueled me initially to get involved like that. And sort of, I, I felt like I had a responsibility to do something almost. Did you also notice that all the older activists were tired <laughs> oh no, I, I yeah. <laughs> Although the, the I gotta say the people in the climate space that we worked with because we, we worked a lot with Stopadani and also the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Although that does include people who are like in their thirties um, and Tipping Point and a bunch of these groups, um, but these sort of older activists were so key to us at first. Just sort of having people to talk to and ask like, hey how do we do this? Like, <laughs> how do we do the most basic stuff? Like they, and I think they were so energized and excited to see that we were getting so involved and we had all this momentum and yeah, it was, <laughs> it's it sort of brilliant intersection of all these different areas of the climate movement. Let's talk about School Strike for Climate, the, the big mm. protest 2019. When you started out building that, that uh, march, mm. What did you think it was going to be and how did you react the day after? Like what did you think the day after? (laughs) Yeah, I remember, and this is the case for me for every single protest I have ever organised, I think no one is going to show up (laughs) and we're all going to regret it and we've done all this stuff and then there's going to be a tiny crowd and we're just going to be really upset. Wow, (laughs) so you do, you produce a march like I produce comedy festival shows. (laughs) Yeah, so then I I, I saw the big school strike and I was like, no one's going to show up and it's going to be really tiny and everyone's going to think that everyone's going to show up but that's not going to be the case and I, I was panicked. And I, I think one thing that did alleviate it a bit, I remember one specific thing was um, it was a couple of days before the strike and I was walking down a street and I saw outside a news agent, you know how they have the sort of big headlines exhibited outside. And it said like something like how like climate strike, how teachers are responding, something like that. And I was like, well, that's assuming you know what the school strike is. Like it, they know, everyone knows what the climate strike is which means this must be, like, it felt like there's this incredible energy around it. And then the day of, I was just, like, bewildered. Take me through that day. What what, what did that day start off for you like? So I got up pretty early, I think, and I I was actually filming with foreign correspondent as well. So they sort of, like, meet me at my house and, like, following me around. Um, And then we get there and there were already strikers there. We had this big stage set up um, in, and spe- in the domain. Yeah. So we had this big stage set up and then um, these massive speakers all through the domain and it also even a, a big screen. <laughs> like, and it, that was one thing that I was like, oh, this is so cool. I feel like I'm at a music festival or something. But um, yeah. And then people started showing up and I, re- I think one thing I noticed was that at the previous school strikes, people generally showed up. Um, a bit earlier, I found. I think 
I don't know why school kids are always very early. So then I was like, oh, it's it's 30 minutes before it started and there's only several thousand people <laughs> here. Like I started really worrying at that point. But as everyone um, left the lunch break and started walking down to the domain and then more and more kids also started flooding through because apparently the trains had like broken from oh, the no. amount of people. Um, yeah, and then just suddenly it, it was filled up and then I turned around in the back of us um, sort of in the – area with the trees and the gallery and that was filled too and then people are on the streets and it just was endless like even as we were speaking there were still people coming in the entire time and like it, it's just incomprehensible you cannot ever fully process that like mm. there there's just too many people and things happening but it, it, it was just incredible. So how long did the glow of that march of that day last before you realised Shit, I've got to do something else now. <laughs> Not it is like the next morning, probably. <laughs> I, I think that's that's always the case. Like it's as soon as we do one thing, and you know, it, it's really exciting. We've done all this awesome stuff. And we're like, okay, now the dust has settled a little bit. Like we have to start doing something else. And I think that um, you know, one thing interesting actually following that strike because we started organizing another massive one mm. um to be in May, and then. You know, pandemic and whatnot. And I think that that sort of changed our definition of what doing something was. And I think that was probably to our benefit because it's just not that sustainable to be doing the most intensive organising, like massive events just like month after month. You do have a HSC to worry about this year. (laughs) I'll I'll think about that at some other point. But (laughs) yeah, but the fact that... um, we started working on ourselves internally and also just having other sort of programs and different sorts of protest and things like that I, th- I think was really useful. I feel like from the outside I haven't been part of your organisation. I've been to the big protest in 2019. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer in school so, you know, can't, can't, <laughs> can't exactly strike. But um, I feel like School Strike for Climate did something that a lot of other movements haven't. It's I, I feel like it did a bit of a thing where it woke up a large part of the population to what was happening and allowed folks to give give space for folks to have a discourse about climate action. How do you see the success of School Strike for Climate at this point? I think that COVID has made things very difficult because as a whole people's attention and what they're focused on has shifted enormously. And I think currently we have a lot more potential to shift it back because particularly in a location like Australia, you know, it, it, it's we're able to mostly go about our day-to-day lives and it, it doesn't inhibit us in that way. Whereas when you're existing in a space where, you know, people are worried about their jobs and everything has been upturned and it just feels so chaotic and just day-to-day life is so stressful, like it, it's hard to keep that conversation going but I don't think that means that we shouldn't because we've sort of been confronted with this enormous global crisis and as a result ignored the other enormous global crisis and yeah I think it's worrisome but I have noticed definitely that people are starting to talk about this more and it's sort of become more part of the collective consciousness I think recently and I do think young people as well are definitely willing to act and still caring about this at this point. Uh, So how do you feel about COVID and uh, what are your plans for the gas-led recovery? (laughs) God. I just, every time I hear of it, 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 gas is sort of, 
The Australian government <laughs> is absurd. Sorry, I just got to like, get. I, let me just get settled here because I feel like this is going to be a long one. <laughs> well, the, the thing is that when you ignore the climate crisis part of everything, if you ignore the whole, you know, impending doom bit, and you just look at it in terms of economics, this is absurd. Like the fact that we are still investing in this like now archaic form of energy that is clearly sort of going out of fashion and is not where the future lies and we have to subsidise it often for it to even be profitable when we have this thing that renewable energy is so much cheaper, is like we have so much potential to be a nation that exports renewable energy. Like we have this entire... (laughs) <laughs> sector of industry that we're just not doing anything with. It's it's ridiculous. Like it, it, it ah, and I, I think also if you're, I think you'll find Jane. Oh, I think I think you'll find that slowly killing the planet is much more profitable for <laughs> for, 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 for Scott Morrison's friends than yeah. not. <laughs> um, it's a absurd headline today where Scott Morrison said that. Um, uh, He's going. They're going to be investing in a uh, interconnector between New South Wales and South Australia to feed mm. more gas through New South Wales and South Australia to ensure the lights stay on in South Australia. Where, of course, the absurd history is of very recent history is that South Australia has been doing just fine on renewables. Yeah. Often, a hundred percent renewables have been powering the entire state for days on end. Uh, how do you feel when you see headlines like this? Does it energize you to continue your work? Definitely, yeah. Because I, I think it's quite frustrating seeing this. Because it, honestly, it's misinformation. You know, it, it's this narrative that's continuously being pushed about. You know, well, the the sun's not shining all the time, and you know, when the wind doesn't blow, like, what are we going to do? When there's battery technologies, and we've mostly sorted that out, and we can convert to full renewable energy in this way. But I think that it, it definitely does motivate me because. Though it is frustrating and draining at points, seeing it just sort of proves to me it's kind of that drive again of feeling a responsibility to take action. Mm. You've got two important things happening this year. Uh, You've got your HSC. Yes. You also have COP26 at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. How do you balance those two (laughs) huge things? Um, I don't want to yeah. put I don't want to put COP twenty six on your shoulders, but yeah. how how are you looking at COP twenty six as an event coming up during what is also a very important time for your education? Mm. Well, I think the fact that I'm probably not going to be there will be useful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if, 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 yeah. COVID, yeah. if COVID didn't if, exist, you'd probably be in yeah, Glasgow, I'd right? probably be hoping to, but yeah, I think it's the sort of thing where. I feel like I don't have influence over it in ways. Like I, I sort of look at it and I'm like, oh, my God, it's this thing of all the big scary people all coming together and saying they're going to do something and then not doing a thing and then that's it. Have you been to a cop before? That's exactly what happens. <laughs> but I also think that if everyone has that attitude, then nothing will ever change. And um, I, I do think that as a group, if we sort of, keep pushing and everyone everywhere that sort of those tiny things do continue putting pressure to sort of shift this issue in the correct direction. But also, yeah, year 12 has been very fun to be doing <laughs> during this because it, it. I think I've just sort of had to learn how to reprioritize things at points because if I have an 
a test the next day. Like I'm not able to join this organizing meeting or something. And I think that used to really stress me out because I sort of felt that like everything was going to fall apart if I couldn't make every meeting and if I couldn't be involved in every way. But knowing that I can trust the kids in our movement, like they are all fantastic activists and they're all so intelligent and know what they're doing. And like, you know, I, I don't need to be there. <laughs> like I, I can be in a position where like I'm, you know, if I don't join a call, it's not like I'm the glue that's holding everything together. Mm. Great. Uh, so what does the movement look like over the next few years for you? Like w- w- how are you plotting out the next few years of, of climate action related activism and, and where you'd like to see us as a nation uh, heading into the future? Mm. I think that as a group, the, the number one thing is just sort of making climate the core issue again and sort of re-sparking that conversation. And I know definitely that we are going to be planning more major school strikes. In fact, on May 21st, we will be having school uh, school strike event across the country. It'll be interesting because more and more of the kids who started off as strikers will be reaching 18 and adulthood and being able to vote. And I think that that sort of more official say in the conversation will probably influence us in ways and I I think will further help us in putting the pressure on politicians. But yeah, I I think it's just going to be a matter of continuously showing this crisis and um, pushing it as the number one issue and and not backing down until change is made. Do you think politicians see that sea of school kids and going, oh God, next election, they're all going to be able to vote? (laughs) I I hope so. Although the the one thing that does worry me, because I've had conversations before, people bring up like, oh, you know, Gen Z, you're going to be the ones to change everything and, you know, (laughs) can't wait till you're in power until you can all vote. And Sounds like you've been at a writer's festival. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, yeah. (laughs) But the, the thing is that by the time where we have this significant political power, it is far too late to avert the worst impacts of this crisis. Um. By the time that, you know, Gen Z will be the politicians and will be having, you know, enough votes to really swing elections, we don't, we won't have any time left. We will already have pushed this climate crisis far beyond, you know, to a very extreme point. Um, And I think that sometimes that narrative of, you know, like, well, when the young people come in power, like everything will be okay is... Yeah, it's just sort of, again, pushing the solution and pushing this action. It's delaying. Yeah, sweeping out of the road. It's delaying de- it again. Yeah. Yeah, but um, I think that's part of why, as young people, it's been so important for us to mobilise when we're not even 18 because we're sort of saying, like, hey, you guys need to wake up and do something now. Like, this is, even though people have been talking about it, clearly nothing is being done and you need to stop sweeping this under the rug and you need to take immediate climate action. So what does Australia look like in, you know, five, ten years' time? What do you what do you hope Australia Okay, is? hope. Okay. <laughs> so I think you know, one of the number one things I think actually is looking at First Nations justice and, and land rights and um, particularly traditional landowners' um, management of forests and land and whatnot because that is so key to this this is solving the crisis and that has been a core tenet in upholding the ways that we have been destroying the climate. I also think that, of course, we will be fully transitioned to full renewable energy. I think that we will have been investing 
in the renewable sector, probably to the point where we're actually exporting renewables. I think that we'll be seeing it as sort of this core tenet of Australian industry and our economy. And we'll be very glad that we invested in it. And I, yeah, I think we'll be very glad that we divested from an energy that now is completely irrelevant and would have lost us a lot of money in the long run. And I think primarily we'll be in a society where we can see that we are creating a livable future for everybody in a just and fair way. That's really a, that's a very clear, precise platform and I would vote for it, G. Thank that you is very, very much. That's very, very, very good. I think it's really interesting you say, you know, um, you're talking about how, how fossil fuels is kind of getting to the point where it is relevant and uh, it would lose money in the long run. It's mm. so annoying to me to see us lose money on fossil fuels immediately, like right now, like mm. the, the, the sheer amount of of subsidisation of the sector Absolutely. and the sheer amount of royalties lost, particularly with gas, uh, and not seeing any of that money come back to Australia to be reinvested in renewable energy is ex- extremely frustrating. Mm. How do you stop yourself from getting frustrated to the point of not taking any action? Mm. I think that is very, very difficult because the easiest position to take on this is we're like we're fucked and there's no point doing anything. (laughs) Though I think honestly, I probably naturally would tend more towards that. You have to have hope because because if you don't hold incredibly close to you that this is um, something that can change and that there is potential for us to radically change our society, then there's no point doing anything at all. You know, without holding that hope you've already let the other side win and you've sort of ceded victory. So I think um, it's a thing of of recognising that even if I find it so hard to imagine things actually changing, I have to be able to see things actually changing. You know, I have to be able to hold on to that hope because if not, then I'm admitting defeat already. Courage is contagious. When I see people like you step up and do your work, I feel courageous. Who made Jean Hinchliffe courageous? Oh, that's an interesting question. I I think that, okay, half of it is that I don't really think before I do things. (laughs) And I'm not even saying that in a joking manner. That is how I got into activism. I just saw a thing I was interested in and said, yep, I'll do this thing. And it's only when I showed up to meetings and doing things. I was like, oh, I, I, I'm doing this thing and there's lots of adults here and this is very scary and big. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I, I think that's probably how I initially got into it. But I think in an ongoing way, it's been the other young people around me because I just see, like, the school strike movement, both in Australia and internationally, as the most incredible thing in how we have all these young people who haven't, uh, generally as a whole, haven't really been that involved in the climate space before, um, sort of coming together in this really chaotic group and constructing this social movement that has had such real intangible impact and has really changed the way that we think about climate. And Knowing that, it, it feels surreal. It feels like I wasn't even part of that because it's so cool and amazing and all these people had done it themselves. What do you do outside of this? 
<laughs> I know. I yeah. saw in your book you you know you you had dreams of once of being a, a ballet dancer. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, but what 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 is Jean Hinchliffe's hobbies outside of yeah. outside of activism? One thing which I think a lot of I mean I'm not doing it much at the moment, but I do act. Um, I've been in a couple of shows. Really? What have you been in? Yeah. Um, I was in an ABC show called Les Norton. Oh yeah, and great. that was great fun. Friend yeah. of mine wrote that. Oh wow. Um, yeah, so I played um, David Wenham's daughter in that one. Oh, cool. Great. <laughs> Which is great fun. Um, oh, it's, it's sick. I love that, all these 80s clothes and, like, oh, that was so much fun. <laughs> and then um, the other one I've been in is called The Unlisted, which is this, like, ABC Me show, um, which is also done with Netflix. Um, and, yeah, that one was sort of this the kind of sci-fi drama thing aimed at 12-year-olds, and that was very good fun as well. <laughs> Great. And what are you doing for your HSC? What are your subjects? Oh, man. Um, English Advanced, Math Advanced, Modern History, History Extension, Earth and Enviro Science and Drama. My God, Earth and Enviro Science. That wasn't even an option when I was in high school. Yeah, well, most of it is learning about rocks. Um, oh, right, right, okay. And, like, these rocks come from this right, and like right. that stuff. But we do actually have a unit on climate science, right. which has been really exciting. And my sort of depth study that I'm doing for it is looking at how accurately the Australian media reports on climate. If you don't get like 100 out of 100 for that, <laughs> you, 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 you must be very, you will be very upset, yeah. I bet. Mm. You're like, I've done the ratings. <laughs> I've done all of the ratings for this subject. Yeah. That's amazing. And how... Are you thinking about tertiary education? Are you thinking about university? Yeah. Um, I think I'm probably going to go into like a really, really useless arts degree. <laughs> that is my current plan. Um, what exactly that will be, I'm not sure. I'm interested in like literature and kind of arts history but also <laughs> political stuff and like, yeah, just something really useless that probably is going to cost an absurd amount now. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, I think for me, I sort of see, I really, really enjoy learning. I, I have lots of fun from it. And I, I remember I had a realisation recently. I'm like, I'm done with school. Like if that's the end of my learning journey, I'm going to be really sad. Like that is so upsetting. So um, yeah, I, I see it as a space where I just want to try things out and figure out what I like and learn about literature and do all that stuff and then maybe figure out how to apply that to the real world afterwards. That, that is absolutely, totally great. I love that. Because, you know, when you get older, you don't have time to do that. <laughs> mm. Jean, tell me about the future. I want to know what does it look like in 2061? What are you up to? What's going on just in your average Saturday? Uh-huh. How oh. old are you going to be in 2061? I will be, okay, that's 40, um, 57. Oh, man, that is old. And I could not tell you. I have no clue. I know I will continue doing activism. That is one thing which I feel very sure about that I want to continue doing and that no matter what space I end up in and no matter what career path I go through, I want activism to always be core to what I'm doing and all, it's just such a... I, I can't imagine life without it. Hopefully also I will be continuing roller skating at that point. That's been my favourite hobby recently. I go to skate parks with my friend. It's great. And honestly, beyond that, I have no idea. <laughs> mm. Probably being very excited and seeing our new uh, 
improved economy and societal structure that is allowing us to have a livable planet. Fingers crossed. Can you imagine what your job might be in, in you know, in 2061? I really don't know because um, I think that it's so hard to tell right now because I, I have so many areas that I'm interested in and, and things I want to do that I just, I mean, I, I don't even know what uni course I'm doing, man. I have no clue how that's going to turn into like actual real life. Um, I mean, one thing is I, I do hope to write more books in the future. Um, not exactly sure what yet, but I just really enjoy writing and, um, yeah, I have lots of fun with that. If you had a message to people who are interested in climate action, what would you like to say to them? I think that the number one thing anyone can do is get involved in their community and see what already exists um, at the moment around you because though I think you see movements like school strike and these sort of massive actions and it feels like that's the most important activism but real sort of fundamental change comes from the grassroots and it comes from communities, you know, demanding change and and changing their area and their space for the better. And when that is done on this enormous scale, you get such deep change. So, you know, if you want to make change and if you want to make a difference, look at what groups exist around you, look at what campaigns, look at what people in your community are fighting for and maybe look at the gaps in that and see how you can help fill that. Um, yeah, and just sort of believe in yourself, believe in your ability and your influence to make change and take that step because I promise you that you have so much more power than you could possibly imagine. Hmm. Jean, what's your electorate? I'm in Granler. Granler. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> you can't really outseat it. Okay, mm. dethrone Albo, can you? Have you thought about moving to Wentworth? Oh. <laughs> There's an election next year and you've got nothing on. <laughs> Might be fun. <laughs> Jean, thank you so much for joining us on the Greatest Moral Podcast of Our Generation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> You're listening to the Greatest Moral Podcast of Our Generation. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.